You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. This weekend, as well as next weekend, we're going to take a little bit of a detour from our, our pattern of the uh, preaching on the gospel reading of the week. I've got a couple, couple fresh sermons I want to share with you. And um, This first one, we're going to be in just a moment, we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 5, but the title of the sermon, to whet your appetite, is Holy Land and Chosen People. And it's probably not what you think, but that's the title of the sermon, Holy Land and Chosen People. So... Let's go ahead and look at our text, and then we're going to dive right into this. It's part of a larger story, and we're going to catch the very tail end of the story, and then after we read this kind of the crescendo, the climax uh, of the story, I'm going to tell the story in my own words, which is always what I like to do. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 14. So Naaman went down and bathed in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy, and he became clean. He returned to the man of God with all his attendants. He came and stood before Elisha, saying, Now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, I swear by the life of the Lord I serve that I won't accept anything. Naaman urged Elisha to accept something, but he still refused. Then Naaman said, If not, then let me, your servant, have two mule loads of earth. Your servant will never again offer entirely burned offerings or sacrifices to any other gods except the Lord. Amen. So this story takes place somewhere around the year 850 B.C. Israel was at a very low point in its story, as quite honestly they were most often. They were living in constant fear of their neighbor to the north, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a burgeoning superpower in that part of the world. They were becoming a mighty empire. They had a very aggressive policy of expansion, like all empires. And they had a reputation for being particularly cruel and barbaric. And they were being ruled over by the king of Assyria, a guy named Ben-Hadad II. And his top military general, his department of defense, we might say, was this guy named Naaman. And Naaman had a reputation for being a brilliant military strategist and leader of men. And he had led the Assyrian army in victory after victory after victory, including some victories over Israel. And it was during one of these military advances into the northern part of Israel, where once again the Assyrians were victorious, and Naaman and his army, they returned back to Assyria with some spoils of war, which included some young Hebrew girls. Evidently, their, 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 their uh, moms and dads had been killed in the fighting, and they were brought back as spoils of war 
for the Assyrian army. And Naaman himself, the, the general, brought back a particular Hebrew girl to put into his household and he was going to give her to his wife as a maid. You know, you read quite a bit of this kind of stuff in the Bible, but such was the ancient world. So we have this young Hebrew slave girl. Let's give her a name. You know, she's not named in the story, but we'll call her Miriam, a common Jewish name for a young girl. And let's say that Miriam was around the age of 14. This is a young girl who has already experienced a lifetime of sorrow. She's witnessed the destruction of her village. Her parents, her, any siblings have been killed. And she's been brought into a foreign land to live with a foreign people. And she's now a maid to the wife of the top Assyrian general. But over some time, Miriam finds some measure of healing, such as the, resilient, the resilience of the human spirit. And she finds even some love. She finds a family. She finds a home there in Assyria. And somehow or another, she's able to find some degree of happiness. Now, as I mentioned, Naaman was uh, a brilliant military leader and strategist, but he was also a pagan. You know, what else would you expect him to be? He worshipped all of the various gods of Assyria, among them Chemosh and Ishtar, and then the supreme being of the Assyrian pantheon, Baal. And he's a very devout worshiper of these various Assyrian gods, as would be expected of a man of his stature and his position. But one day, Naaman looks at the back of his hand, and he sees a spot and he doesn't think much of it, but it doesn't go away. And it starts to kind of spread. And, and, and when he touches it, he can't feel anything. The nerves evidently have gone dead. And his skin, his hand increasingly is becoming numb. And then very rapidly, it begins to spread throughout his body. And eventually Naaman faces the very uh, horrible truth that he has contracted leprosy the most dreadful disease in the ancient world. He's become a leper. Nothing could be worse. In fact, in most cultures back then, including in the culture of Israel, if you have contracted leprosy, you were to be isolated and separated, quarantined from society for the sake of public health. And you were to be removed, even forcibly if necessary, from your family and friends. And you were forced to live in a colony of lepers outside of the city or the village in abject poverty, perhaps never to see your family again. Now, presumably, this won't be Naaman's fate because of his high social status and position. But nevertheless, it's going to profoundly change his life and result in all kinds of compounded suffering for him and his loved ones. And whenever news gets around his household about what's happened to him, people become discouraged and brokenhearted, including our young Hebrew slave girl, Miriam. She's grown to love and respect her master. And one day she just kind of wistfully, wistfully mentions to Naaman's wife, she says, oh, I wish my master could go see that prophet in Israel. I know he could heal him. And she says, what did you say, Miriam? She says, I, I said, I wish that 
my master could go see the prophet of Israel, I know he could be healed. She sits her down and says, Miriam, what are you saying? She says, I'm saying there's a prophet in Israel who heals the sick, even lepers. And all of a sudden, just like that, hope is revived. And she tells her husband. Well, Naaman is kind of skeptical. But, you know, when you're in a desperate situation, you'll grasp for any straw of hope you can find. And so he goes before the king of Assyria, Ben-Hadad II, and he says, Your majesty, you know my plight. You know I've contracted leprosy. But I've been told that there's the possibility of healing in Israel. King, king Ben-Hadad says, is that so? And he says, I tell you what, you know, you are so important and vital to the strategy of what we're doing here. Like, we absolutely need you, Naaman. You're essential to our agenda. And so he says, I'll do whatever I can do to see every possibility that you can find healing if that possibility exists. So I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a letter to the king of Israel, King Joram, requesting that he oversee your treatments. And I'll even send him a gift on top of that. And name in one way or another, we're, we're going to beat this thing. We're going to get rid of this leprosy thing. And so King Ben-Hadad II of Assyria composes a letter and he has the letter sealed. And he sends, along with the letter, he sends a little gift of 750 pounds of gold, 150 pounds of silver, and just for the heck of it, 10 brand new suits. I don't know what all of that would have been worth, but certainly millions. And so Naaman rounds up this entourage, and he's got all of these chariots, these white stallions, bunch of officers and soldiers. He gathers everything together and they make their move into northern Israel all the way to the capital city of Israel where they are met with a lot of trepidation and panic. You know, who is this Assyrian entourage and what are they up to? What do they want from us? But with all of the diplomatic flourishes, Naaman is welcomed into the throne room of the king of Israel, King Joram. And they go through all the proper protocols. But then this letter is handed to the king from Naaman's hand. He hands this letter to King Joram. And King Joram opens up the seal, opens up the letter, and he reads this letter about the king of Assyria wanting him to heal his commanding general who's standing right there in the throne room of leprosy. And King Joram starts to tremble. He starts to shake. And he hastily leaves his throne room. He goes into this side room and he, he, he actually begins to tear at his clothes. He tears his clothing to shreds. It was, a, it was an expression of deep grief and distress. And he calls all of his aides and his advisors into the little room and he tells them, folks, the king of Assyria is seeking a pretext for war against us. He said, I've got a letter from the king, King Ben-Hadad II, and it's telling me to heal his general of leprosy who's standing in my throne room. And he wants me to heal him. I don't know who he thinks I am. But when I can't heal him, he's going to use this as a pretext for war. And he says, we're doomed. And he's very highly disturbed and upset. Well, somehow or another, word about all of this leaks to the famous prophet of Israel, Elisha. Elisha hears about this plight, this horrible scenario, and he especially hears about the king tearing at his clothes. 
And evidently this moves Elisha to send his own letter to the king of Israel. So he, he just scribbles a note and has it brought to the king, King Joram. And basically the note says, uh, King, leave your shirt on. Don't rip your clothes. Send the guy to me. And King Joram is relieved. At the very least, this will buy him some time. And so King Joram goes back into his throne room where Naaman's been waiting this whole time. And, and he goes back in and he says, folks, I, I think there's been kind of a mix up here. It's not me you need to see, but it's our prophet, a guy named Elisha, the son of Shaphat. You need to go see him. And so immediately Naaman takes all of his entourage and they leave the capital city of Israel and they go towards this tiny little uh, one horse village with like two dirt roads Nothing but thatch, mud, huts, little chicken in the yard here and there. Tiny little Jewish village. And they get directions to this one little hovel that's owned by Elisha, the son of Shaphat. Now I want you to get this picture in your mind. You have these um, Assyrian aristocratic military general and his officers, and they've got their expensive chariots and their clothing, their regalia, their white stallions. And they're standing outside this little hut. And one of Naaman's officers who accompanied him, he bangs on that little rickety door. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is inside of this hut with his assistant Gehazi. And when Elisha hears the knock at the door, he says, oh, I know what they're up to. I know what they want. And he tells Gehazi, go on out there and tell them I know why they're here. And I have a message from Yahweh, the God of Israel. And everything's going to be okay. But the message is this. Uh, go dunk yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be clean. And Gehazi's like, oh, brother. All right. Okay. And Gehazi goes outside and he closes the door behind him. And he says, hello, everybody. Glad you're here. Good to see you all. He says, um, uh, my master's kind of uh, busy but it's okay. He knows what to do. He's got a message from Yahweh for you. Now already, Naaman is kind of miffed. He's not used to being snubbed like this. He's feeling a little bit slighted. And he's, he tells Gehazi, he says, I thought the prophet himself would come out and do this little ceremony and wave his hand or whatever, and that'd be it. But instead, he sends you out here. What, tell me, what's the message? And Gehazi takes a deep breath. And he says, uh, the message is this, as follows. From Elisha, not me. Go dunk yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you will be clean. And Naaman's head explodes. And in a fury, he responds to Gehazi. He says, oh, he wants me to go bathe in that muddy little creek that you call a river? I'm done. We're out of here. And he spins on a dime and gives orders and he intends to right then and there haul back to Assyria and he's done with this whole thing but then some of his officers who have cooler heads they step in and they they tell him sir uh we realize this feels insulting and it's really bizarre but if he had asked you to some do something really difficult you would have done it and here we are we've come all this way we've been through all of this you know what's what will this hurt to just give it a try? What do you have to lose? So finally, Naaman relents. And they ride on over to the Jordan River. 
And it really is like a muddy creek. When the further away you get from the Sea of Galilee, it is nothing. It, it's almost like bathing in the Los Angeles River when, when, it, when it actually exists, which it will tomorrow night. But the Jordan River is not a, a, a you know, clean river. And Naaman gets to the bank of the Jordan. He kind of looks around, doesn't see anybody looking. He gets out of his chariot, takes off his regalia and it strips down and he wades into the reeds and into the water and starts to dip himself. And the whole time he's thinking, this is humiliating. Like, I'm, I just feel so stupid. Like, here I am, look, what am I doing? And he's like, I'm the most powerful man in Assyria aside from the king. And here I am dunking myself seven times in this nasty creek. This is so dumb. How many more times? One more time? Okay. And, and he dips himself the seventh time, comes right out of the water, looks down and says, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait a minute. It's gone. All those spots, that leprosy, it's, it's gone. They were right. There is healing in Israel. And immediately Naaman tells everybody, round everybody up. We're going right back to that prophet's hut. I want to go see him again. And so they make a beeline for that little village and they go find that same hut where Elisha lives and this time Naaman will not take no for an answer and he demands that Elisha himself come out to see him so Elisha comes out and Naaman says uh your name's Elisha correct yes it is and Naaman's like I just want to thank you so much because I've been healed from this disease and it's going to change my life and he says you don't know this Elisha but you are now a wealthy man because the king of Assyria he's got a gift for you uh, 750 pounds of gold, 150 pounds of silver, and on top of that, you're going to be the best-dressed prophet in all of Israel. And Elisha says, I don't want a single penny of that. I'm not interested. That, that's not what this is about. I don't want it. I don't want your gold, your silver, your fine clothing. Keep it to yourself. Just bring it back. And Naaman is, is kind of struck, speechless, He's thinking, this is kind of odd. I, I'm trying to give this guy $15 million. He doesn't want it. And Naaman says, uh, well, how about this? Since you, won't give, since you won't let me give you something, how about you give me something? And Elisha says, what do you want? And Naaman says, I want as much dirt from this very spot that you can load up on two mules, and I want to bring this dirt with me back to Assyria. And Elisha says, be my guest. Now, what's going on here? This is Naaman being a theologian. First of all, Naaman has correctly concluded that it's not this prophet Elisha who's healed him. It's this mysterious, mercurial God of Israel, Yahweh, who has healed him. And Naaman has somehow or another discerned that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is somehow connected to the land of Israel. And so Naaman says, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take some of Israel back home with me. And I'm going to load up this dirt and put it in my yard at my house so I can keep maintaining this connection with Yahweh who has the compassion and the willingness to heal me, even someone like me. And I, I just kind of imagine 
Naaman's, get a picture of this. I imagine Naaman's beautiful Beverly Hills-like villa there in Damascus. And there in his backyard, he got two piles of dirt. And every day he'll go and stand out on those mounds of dirt to worship, not Chemosh, not Ishtar, not Baal, but Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's a beautiful story of not just healing, but conversion. And it's got everything you'd want in a story. It's got drama. It's got comedy. It's got the perfect ending. It's a wonderful story. A Syrian leper finds hope and healing in the God of Israel. But it's also a subversive story. Because it's in the Hebrew Bible. It's in the Hebrew Scriptures. And who is it, that, who is it that's being healed? Not only is Naaman not a Jew, he's a Gentile, but he's not even just an ordinary Gentile. First of all, he's an Assyrian, and the Assyrians were the mortal enemies of Israel for centuries and centuries and centuries. And not only is he just an Assyrian, he's not an ordinary Assyrian. He is the highest ranking military officer of the Assyrian army who Israel happened to be in a war with at this very moment. You couldn't find a worse enemy of Israel than Naaman. And yet, as this story is being told, it humanizes Naaman. Like, how many of you, as I was telling that story, how many of you found yourselves rooting for Naaman? And you were happy when he got healed. And you see, this story is included in the Jewish scriptures. Knowing full well that the Jews of all generations would read this story and get drawn into this story and find themselves rooting for Naaman and being happy when he's healed. It's a story that's in here so that God's people can begin to see even their enemies as human beings. That Naaman is not just some Darth Vader figure like I see on Sam's shirt. And Ben-Hadad is not Emperor Palpatine and together they're running this evil empire. That's kind of how they would have seen these guys. But no, as they're reading or as they're hearing this story, They're realizing that even Naaman is a human being with a family and hopes and dreams. And you know what? We're glad he got healed. As we're tiptoeing into another election season in particular, I want to tell you this. It's easy to hate ideologies, but it's hard to hate human beings once you've heard their story. An enemy is a person whose story you haven't yet heard. At the beginning of 2 Kings 5, the only way a Hebrew reading these scriptures could think of an an Assyrian was as an enemy. But once they hear the story of Naaman, they're like, well, dang it, I kind of like that Naaman guy. And I'm glad God healed him. And 900 years later, Naaman's story will almost get Jesus killed in his hometown. Part two. Let's fast forward a few centuries to Luke 4. Let's look at Luke 4 together. Verse 16. It says, it begins this way, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been 
raised. Now, as, as many of you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he's raised in Nazareth from the time he was a little toddler all the way into his adult years, his adult life. He lives in Nazareth, but then he, when he gets baptized in the Jordan, when he gets dipped in the Jordan by his cousin John, he launches his public ministry and he actually relocates to Capernaum. And that's where actually Jesus launches his ministry and he's starting, he's starting to become well-known. He's doing miracles. He's performing healings. People are starting to find out that there's a prophet here in Galilee who could he be? Maybe he's the Messiah. And here in Luke 4, for the first time since he's launched his ministry and left behind his carpentry tools, Jesus returns to his hometown. And they're all excited. They're all proud of their hometown boy. They're ready to put a sign up at the entrance of Nazareth. Welcome to Nazareth, home of the Messiah. And let's look at what happens again. Let's pick it up again. Verse 16, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been raised. I just wanted you to get the context there. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue as he normally did and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he finds, you know, the book of Isaiah wouldn't have looked like this with pages you turn. It's just one long scroll with no chapters and verses. But Jesus knows the scroll so well, he knows right where to go, and he unrolls it, and he looks for one particular place. It's what we call Isaiah 61, and Jesus is going to quote the first two verses, almost. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to lip, liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. Now, Jesus does something here that kind of tips his hand and a lot of us may not be aware of it, but that crowd would have been aware. First of all, what he's doing is he opens up to the place where he reads from a very famous prophecy about this coming king to Israel, this coming Messiah. So he's reading basically the job description of the Messiah that Isaiah records in Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, we'll look at it in just a moment, but in Isaiah 61, it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord is going to be upon this person, this Messiah, who's going to preach good news to the poor. He's going to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. And he's going to liberate the oppressed. And he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But what Jesus does is he actually stops mid-sentence. And sits down. He doesn't finish the prophecy. He stops mid-sentence. It would be like today if somebody were up here preaching on John 3.16. And they quoted and say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him. And just stops and sits down. Like you all would be like, wait, you left out some kind of important parts there. Finish, finish the verse. 
that's what Jesus does. And I want to show you where he cuts it off. Now show me Isaiah 61 verse 2. Here's where Jesus cuts it off. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Boom. That's it. And he leaves out the second half of the verse. And the day of vengeance of our God. He leaves it out. He omits it. You say, Ryan, can he do that? Yeah, because he's the word of God. What does that teach us? I think it teaches us a lot. But I think most importantly, it teaches us we need to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus and no other lens. Now, lest you think I'm making too much of a big deal over a half a sentence not being read by Jesus, let's look at what happens next. Pick it up in verse 21. He began to explain to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. it. It's a blatant claim of being Messiah. Everyone was raving about Jesus. They're all whispering, he's so wonderful. He's our hometown boy. We're so proud of little Jesus. We saw him playing t-ball with our kids when he was little. He's our boy. They're excited. They're so impressed. So impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips. They said, this is Joseph's son, isn't it? Then Jesus said to them, undoubtedly, you will quote this saying to me, doctor, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. So what they're saying is, when they say doctor, heal yourself, they're saying, come on, you're one of us, we're one of you, you did miracles in Capernaum, you healed people in Capernaum, now heal yourself, heal us. That's what they're saying. Verse 24, he said, I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown. Sometimes this is misunderstood. He's not saying no hero is accepted in his hometown because that happens all the time. He's not saying no hometown boy done well is ever accepted in his hometown. That happens all the time. He's saying, but if he's a prophet, he's not going to be accepted. You know, when you read the Gospels, you see that oftentimes Jesus was very, very popular until he started becoming prophetic. And that's when they deserted him or tried to throw stones. And so let's look at what happens and look how quickly everything turns because he's about to be prophetic. Verse 25. And I can assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time when it didn't rain for three and a half years and there was a great food shortage in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to a widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So that's enemy territory. That's like Syrophoenician territory. This woman belongs to the same category as the Assyrians, essentially. And Jesus goes out of his way to point this out in the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, hey, you remember that story way back there where there was a huge famine and all of these Israelite widows, I'm sure that they were starving. Many of them were starving to death. Yet God didn't send Elijah to any of them. He sent he sent Elijah to this Syrophoenician woman and he blesses her. That gets their attention. And then he, he ups the ante. Look at where he goes in verse 27. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. Can you imagine somebody preaching something like this where they say something like, you know what? There were lots of Israelites or Israeli lepers 
And Yahweh didn't heal any of them. He only healed that Palestinian, that leader of Hamas. How well do you think that would go over? Let's see how well it went over 2,000 years ago. Verses 28 through 30. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill. Then I've been on this hill on which their town had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. You know what that reminds me of? You remember those old Bugs Bunny cartoons where Bugs and Elmer Fudd would get in a fight and you'd see them like wrestling around. There'd be like this big cloud and you can't see what's going on. And then all of a sudden, Bugs Bunny just walks out of the cloud and Elmer Fudd's just left there. But what do we have here? We have Jesus taking one of these very subversive stories out of the Hebrew Bible. It's not one of the most beloved stories, but it's right in there. And Jesus pulls it out and shows it to him and says, look at this. Look at what I found in the Bible. Apparently, God likes to heal others. You see, as long as Jesus would have just played it safe and said, God wants to save you. God wants to heal you. God wants to help you. They would have said, wonderful, we love our hometown boy. Let's erect a sign in his honor. Praise God, hallelujah. But as soon as Jesus starts talking about, you know what, he also wants to save and help and heal your enemies, it's like, what? Let's throw him off a cliff. The quickest way to unite a crowd and energize a crowd, whether it's a church or any group of people, the quickest way to unite and energize a crowd is to unite around a common hatred of a common enemy. That's the quickest way to do it. And I see it happening all the time, including in churches. Find someone to demonize. You will, you will unite and energize that church quicker than anything. And the challenge for God's church in our toxic society that we live in today particularly going into the next 15 months is can we unite together without having to hate someone to do it can we unite around the person and vision of jesus is that enough and for these people in nazareth on this day it seemed to be impossible they couldn't do it they're ready to throw jesus away what we do in, in our society, we don't throw Jesus away, we just redefine Jesus. And we lie about him and say, I know Jesus hates my enemies as much as I do. But it's not true. So Naaman was on the right track. Naaman was figuring out something right, that God is connected to the Holy Land. And so he wanted to have the Holy Land in his land. So he could maintain connection with this God who is compassionate and would heal him. But Jesus' message, which will later be spelled out more clearly by the Apostle Paul, is much more beautiful than that. Jesus' message is this. The chosen people are the human race and the holy land is the whole earth. Naaman was on the right track, but we've got good news for all the Naamans. You don't have to load up two mule loads of dirt 
nor do you have to fly to Israel to be saved and healed. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Jerusalem is no more holy than Burbank, California, if you can believe it. Because the chosen people is the human race, if we're willing to belong to him. We sing about it. God chose us who were not a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to become his people, part of this new humanity that is being formed in Jesus Christ. The chosen people are the human race, and the holy land is the whole earth. It's not two mule loads of dirt you need to stand on, but just stand anywhere you are and say, I'm standing on holy ground because God has poured out his love upon God's entire creation. Amen. So who is an enemy? It's someone whose story you haven't yet heard. Listen to their story. And you'll say, you know what? Maybe I can see where they're coming from. Or maybe I can understand the pain that would cause them to act out in such an ugly way. Doesn't excuse their choices. But maybe if I listen to their story more, I can begin to see them as a human being made in God's image and a person who has unsurpassable worth. How do I know that? Because Jesus Christ paid an unsurpassable price and felt that that person was worth dying for. And maybe if I listened to their story enough, I could eventually sit down at a table with them and be reconciled. And that's what Jesus offers the world today, a table of reconciliation. And that's what I want to invite you to tonight. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.